Here at Continuum, we love seeing young adults, no matter where they are in their journey of faith, grow deeper in their relationship with Jesus. We are praying that this message encourages, enlightens, and strengthens your walk with Christ. For more information about Continuum, please visit us online at continuumministries.com or follow us on your favorite social media platform. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, so last week we wrapped up our series, So Will I, and we were looking at our identities in Christ. So now we know who we are in Christ. Uh, I felt like a pretty natural transition to talk about how we live that out, especially in a culture of, of compromise. So how do we live godly in an ungodly world? So help us, we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel over the next few weeks. And if you know anything about Daniel, it's got a lot of really great stories in it. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. You know most of these stories because of, let's be honest, veggie tales, right? Oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, where, 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 oh, where? Very good. I'm glad I could bring a little nostalgia back from your childhood. That's good. In the 12th chapter book of Daniel, uh, the first six chapters are historical storytelling. They're just great stories. The last six chapters is Daniel uh, being a prophet. So he gets to see the future. He actually gets to see the end times. And we looked at that. If you remember in the fall, we did that exhaustively. So we're not going to look at the last six chapters because we're done with the end. But anyway, uh, what's interesting to me is when the Bible was canonized, and they started putting the Bible together. They didn't put the Bible together in order chronologically. They didn't put it together like in the order that things happened. So like in the Old Testament, you would read that David was born and he was alive and then he died. And then you'd read a psalm that he wrote. You're like, wait a minute, I thought he died. He did. It's not chronological. The, the, the order is not chronology, but by type. So the first five books of the Old Testament is the law. It's all written by Moses. And then it shifts into the historical books. Uh, the history of the nation of Israel, then it shifts to the poetry books, uh, Psalm and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then it goes to the prophets. And even the prophets is broken into two groups. You have the major prophets and the minor prophets, not major and minor because they're more important than the other, but major because they're just long, they're really long books, and minor prophets are really, really short. Uh, All that to say is that Daniel is a history book, that I believe the Holy Spirit intentionally stuck in the prophecy section so all of us would see that history is indeed actually prophecy. I think it's there to say, hey, these aren't just great stories. This is a playbook of how we're supposed to live when these similar things happen in our culture. This is the playbook on how you're supposed to run the play, the history is prophecy. Daniel lived an incredible life during a time when the whole nation of Israel rejected God and they paid a price for it. And in fact, throughout human history, pretty much every people group that's ever existed has rejected God at some point and paid the consequence for that rejection. I think America is at that precipice right now. If we're not already there, uh, we were founded as a nation under God. And ever since that moment, especially in our current day and age, we have been trying to separate church from state. And yet we sing, God bless America, and I think it's time for America to start blessing God. That's just my personal opinion. But we've got this this thing in our culture where we're rejecting God, and and we see some of the parallel from Daniel in the the culture that he was in. If you don't follow God, you're going to pay a price. And the prophecy for these people was if you don't follow God, you're going to be taken off as slaves. And the Bible actually uses this word called exiled. And they're going to be exiled by all the Babylonians. So Babylon is where modern-day Iraq is, just so you know where that is geographically. 
And the Babylonians were going to come in and they were going to capture as slaves the Israelites. Let's just read it together. This is Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It'll be on the screen behind you. You can have it on your, uh, in your Bible or if you have a Bible app. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, okay, so Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, which means he surrounded the city. So nothing can go in, nothing can go out. If nothing can go in, then no food can go in. Nothing can go, like, you, you basically, you, you, they can't do anything, right? So he wants to seize Israel, but specifically besieging Jerusalem. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, remember that name, we're going to come back to that many times tonight, Ashpenaz, uh, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So let me break this down. So Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he was a, a very wicked king, but he was a very, very smart king. In fact, this is all in modern-day Iraq, and Saddam Hussein actually tried to model his leadership after Nebuchadnezzar. He tried to just pattern his leadership. You know, you might know who Saddam Hussein is. Okay, I know it's young adults, but <laughs> uh, he was a really big, he's like Osama bin Laden before Osama bin Laden, okay? So, um, so anyways, Saddam really, he, he, he mirrored Nebuchadnezzar's leadership. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar decided that he wanted to conquer Israel, specifically the capital city of Jerusalem. And he was going to go smart because he said, I'm not just going to destroy everything. I'm going to go in, I'm going to take the things that I want that are valuable to me. So it says that he raids the temple. So he takes all the nice things of God and he puts them in his house to his God. And he says, I'm not just going to import the, the, the possessions. I'm going to import the best people too. So he would tell his commander, he would say, commander, I want you to go in and I want you to find the best people, the brightest people, the prettiest people, the smartest people. I want you to bring those people to me, primarily in the royal family, because they're going to be the most educated. I want you to bring them to me. And instead of killing these people, which we could... We're going to slowly begin to strip away their culture. It's going to be a process, but we're going to slowly strip away their culture and replace it with Babylonian culture. So I want them to think like us, to act like us, to be like us, because it's going to make us a stronger us. If they're with us, we'll have the brightest minds and the prettiest people. It's going to make us a better people. So I want you to go find those people, and then we'll indoctrinate them with our belief system, with our culture. We'll strip away their culture and we'll be a better us. Does that make sense? So that's his plan. It's a pretty good plan if it, makes, if, it, if it works out. So in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar goes into Jerusalem, raids and loots the temple that Solomon had built, and gets everything valuable from the temple, including some people, the most valuable people, and brings them back to Babylon. Look at verse 4. So he brings back young men without any physical defect, handsome. I know it sounds like it's talking about me, but it's not. Um, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the, the language and literature of the Babylonians. Again, we're going to indoctrinate you. We're going we're to teach you what it looks like to be one of us. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. That's nice. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So he says, nah, we're not going to put you in the fields. We're going to bring you into the house. You're going to be part of the king's 
court, and this is going to be an all-expenses-paid graduate program with a food allowance straight from the king's table. All right, so he says, this is what I'm, I've got for you. Now, some, some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds good. That's a good deal. Like, we thought we were going to be killed. This guy captures us. We thought we are going to die. And no, we're not going to die. We're actually going to live. And we're going to live really well. We get to eat off the king's menu. That's incredible. But here's the problem. This broke every Jewish dietary restriction because this food was used in idol worship. And so they don't want to eat this because this was used in idol worship and therefore it's dirty food in their, in their minds. So there's a problem. So they're going to be trained for three years. We read that a minute ago. And then they're going to enter the king's surface. And, and we see this indoctrination or the effect of culture into a generation. Now I want to stop here and say that if we don't understand the time in which we live, if we don't understand God's holy word, if we don't understand uh, what the book of Daniel is as a playbook for our generation from their generation, then our culture will have the same effect on us as their culture on them, and we won't even realize it's happening. Because the culture, the culture has an agenda. It just does. And it's not the culture's fault. I'm actually talking about the devil. The devil just uses the culture to shape us, to shape our minds and our hearts. And say, well, what what does he do? Let me show you. Okay, look at verse 7. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Okay, so culture has an agenda. And the first item on the agenda is to change your identity. Now, we've talked about this for three weeks, so I'm not going to dive back into this. But just you get that. That that's part of the culture. We want to change who you are. We want to re-identify. We want to rebrand you. To make you believe something about you that's just not true. The devil will put a script over your life that is inconsistent of what is really true of you. You're not supposed to be living by. Now watch the names. This is pretty crazy. Okay, so to Daniel, he says, God is my judge. That's what that means. God is my judge. Daniel means God is my judge. But he gives him the name Belteshazzar, which means lady, protect the king. He gave him a girl name. And in every culture, there, there, you can look this up uh, later. In every culture, there has been gender confusion. And that's something that we're, we're dealing with in 2018. But, but even in this culture, and so he says, hey, we're going to give you a girl name. So he, he's trying to change even the way that we have relationship. Look at Hananiah. Hananiah, it means Yahweh has been gracious. But they said, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to change your name. You need, you need to fear God. You need to be afraid of him. God's not for you. He's against you. So he's trying to change our, our spirituality as well. To Michelle, Michelle, I love this. It means who is what God is. Isn't that a cool name? Who is what God is? Notice the confidence behind that statement. Oh, my God is awesome. Who, who is what my God is? Like, my God is awesome. My God is the best. I've seen him move. He moves the mountains, and I believe I'll see him do it again. They gave him a new name. Meshach means I'm despised, contemptible, and humiliated. He goes from this confidence name to a cowardice name, just like that. And look at Azariah. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. Yahweh has helped. I mean, when he's... He's alongside me. My whole life is successful. They read him Azariah to Abednego, which means a servant in Nebo. And Nebo was this Babylonian god that they worshipped. So Satan is trying to redefine your relationships and your spirituality and your future. Listen to me. As we talked about in So Will I in week one, the only one who is allowed to label us, the only one who is allowed to label anything, 
is the manufacturer of that thing, the owner of that thing, or the purchaser of that thing. Right? Those are the only people that can label it. If, if, if I made something, if I made this shirt, I can put my label on it. If I own this shirt, I can put a label in it. And if I bought this shirt, then I can, I can label it. So again, it's the, it's the manufacturer, it's the owner, or it's, it's the, uh, the purchaser. Well, God made us. And he owns us. And he purchased us. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. That's what 1 Corinthians 6 says. So I just, I just want you to know that the God has put a label on you, but culture is going to try to strip away that label and replace it with one. Don't let that happen. What God stamped on you, don't let that be removed from you. When culture shifts, we must know who we are. Now watch what happens in verse 8. Daniel says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm not going to eat this food. Because I realize this is going to go against every dietary restriction that I have as, as a Jewish man, as well as this food was sacrificed to idols, and so I'm, it was used in idol worship. I don't, I don't know that, that I want to eat this food. I'm not eating it. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved, I love that word. I just get this picture of his feet in concrete, like I'm not doing it. I'm resolving not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official... Ashpenaz, for permission not to defile himself in this way. And I love that he asked for permission. He doesn't go, y'all Babylonians, bunch of heathens, y'all's going to hell. He doesn't say that. He, he said, hey, I have some standards, okay? And I just, I don't want to eat the food. But culture doesn't want you to do that. Culture has an agenda, and the second item on the culture's agenda is culture wants you to compromise your standards. So it wants to change your identity, and it also wants you to compromise your standards. And here's the problem when we compromise. If you compromise, it doesn't erase the tension that you were feeling. It just weakens your resolve. What I mean by that is, is, is uh, it, it doesn't lessen the tension. It just weakens my resolve. So, so if I do something, right, if, if I cheat on my taxes just a little bit, then it's going to be a little bit easier to cheat just a little bit more. If I go into debt a little bit, it's a little bit of debt. It's okay. It's for my wedding. It's for college. Then it's a lot easier to go way, way, way into debt. Well, I'm going to buy me some new shoes too. Right? If we cross a line sexually, it's a lot easier to just cross it again. It didn't hurt me that much last time. Oh, it hurt if I did it again. If we cross a line with whatever, like fill in the blank, whatever, whatever is your temptation, you cross that line, it, it, it doesn't erase the tension, it just weakens our resolve, and, and suddenly we're not as, we, we start to compromise, well, it's okay, it's okay, just, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. A lot of you have felt that tension. I believe Christians are in a dilemma, because the people in here, you're not bad people. I know that. You're not bad people. You want to serve God, but culture puts so much pressure on us, so much tension on you. And and you know what you end up doing? Is you move the plumb line down of God's word to this uh, moral relativism, and you start saying, well, I I know I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as they are. I'm not as bad as him or as her. And and we start playing the comparison game, and that gets really, really sketched because we start comparing ourselves to other people, and God's line is up here. And we just brought the line down here, and we said, well, this is, this is how I'm going to navigate this. And again, we start compromising and bring the line down, and we start living our lives the way we really don't want to live them. Can I make something really clear? That God's word, God's law, is for you. It is. It's for you. It's not against you. 
God was not sitting in heaven going, <laughs> how can I make religion really, really hard for people? No, that's not, it's not how he thinks. How can I make it miserable for everybody? No, listen, all of this, everything put in God's word is not good for God. It's good for you. It just is. I'll prove it to you. Um, in John 8, 32, we talked about this in our, in our uh, discipleship thing, Louis. Um, but... Uh, John 8, 32 says, if, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. That sounds weird. Because the truth, the truth doesn't sound like freedom. It sounds like bondage, right? Like, freedom sounds like I should be able to do whatever I want to do with my body. Because my body, if it feels good, I should do it. That makes sense to me. Like, freedom is, I, it's my body, I'm going to use it how I want to use it. But the truth just to flee from that stuff. And let me just tell you, someone who's done a whole lot of counseling, more counseling at this church than, than probably anybody else, um, and I sit across the room from young adults to seniors, like senior adults, and I see tears streaming down their faces. There's no freedom in that because they've done something they shouldn't have done sexually. They've done something they shouldn't have done with recreational drugs. They've gone too far with the alcohol. They thought that was a freedom move. I could drink what I want to drink. It's my body. But it's ending their marriage. There's no freedom in that. They're like this. They've got handcuffs on. I wish I could free myself. When I think about forgiveness, it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me from the world standpoint. Well, freedom is if you wronged me, I should just be able to hold that against you. Hold that over your head. I'm not going to touch you anymore. You're my enemy, right? That, is, that sounds like freedom, but that's not freeing. Because then you're always tiptoeing around them, and you feel like you have to avoid them, and they work with you, so i got to get a different job because I don't want to see them anymore. When you can just give them forgiveness, which is what the truth teaches, and you say, listen, I, I forgive you. It's okay. It's all right. I love you. Don't worry about it. I love you. It's good. We're good. How much more freeing is that? And they're going, what? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. I think about finances. It's, it makes sense to me that I should be able to spend my money. It's my money. Spend my money the way I want to spend my money. But again, I've counseled lots and lots of couples who are entering into marriage, and, and there's a lot. that Finances is one of the top reasons that couples don't make it. And they're not feeling freedom in that moment. They're feeling a lot of bondage. They're slaves to lenders. And so I see that. I see that this is not good for God. This is good for you and for me. Like, this is good. John, uh, James one twenty five says, uh, and whoever pays attention to the law, there's freedom in that. If we hold on to that, not forgetting what we have learned, but continuing in it, doing it, we'll be blessed in all that we do. We, we've, got, we've got to wrap our minds and our hearts around the word of God. When culture shifts, it's got to reaffirm our convictions. And what's so cool is that Daniel made up his mind. He resolved before he knew what the end of Daniel would be like. Before he wrote Daniel and read Daniel, he already made up his mind. He says, you know what? I'm not going to eat the food. And I love that. Think about that. Like at that time, you saying no to the king, hey, eat my food. I'm not going to eat the food. Like he might be signing his own death sentence, but he doesn't even think that way. He just goes, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Again, if we're there. You're thinking, oh, what's the, it's, just, it's just food. Yeah, I don't want to be here. But it's just, what's a little food? It's just a little food. Yeah, it's just, again, when you compromise, it doesn't, it doesn't lessen the tension. It just weakens your resolve. And once you say, okay, I'll do the food. Okay, 
I'll go to the classes and I'll learn a little bit. And then the next thing you know, you're a Babylonian who was once a God follower. And he just says, you know what? I'm just going to draw the line in the sand. I'm not going to do that. And we have to make up our minds and reaffirm our convictions, hold firming to, holding firm to, truth, to the truth of God's word. Look at verses 9 and 10. I love the first part of this. It says, now God. <laughs> There's something or someone we forget to factor into a lot of these things. And God would use the very thing that Daniel would draw the line in the sand with to really direct the rest of Daniel's life. It says, now God has caused the official Ashpenaz to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Okay, So Ashpenaz, I don't know why, but he likes Daniel. But he's also very fearful of Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, if I let you get away with this and you don't eat the food, and then you start looking sicker than everybody else, the king's going to have my head. Because he's going to say, what's wrong with Daniel? And then it's going to come out and I'm going to get killed. Okay? But look at what Daniel asked to be done for him and his friends. Look at verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So Ashpenaz agreed to this and tested them for ten days. I love this. By the way, this is not the first test that would come throughout this book. In fact, this, that's, if there's anything unique about the book of Daniel, is how many times Daniel and his friends' faith were tested. And I just think Christians are in a dilemma because we want to influence the culture. I know you do. I know you want to influence the culture. You want to influence your workplace. You want to influence your campuses. You want to influence the, the, the apartment complex, that you're, the neighbors that, you, that surround you. You want to influence the culture, but you don't want to be influenced by the culture. And we're caught in this weird thing. How do you navigate that pendulum without swinging it too far in one direction or the other? Because I found that the big C American church, we struggle with this. We do. Like we swing it too far this way and, and we say it's all about um, the law. And, and if you don't follow that, then, then you're going to hell, right? We do, we, it's, it's, we're so dogmatic about it and judgmental of other people. And we say, you know, you, this, is, this is the law, right? This is what you've got to do. And Daniel was like, I, I, I get that. Like I don't want to eat the food. I don't even want to eat the food. Like I'm drawing the line in the sand, and some people, they, they, they camp out over here. And then there's some other people that swing the pendulum way too far in the other direction. And they said, well, um, we're just going to give grace and mercy to everybody. And come on, we just accept everybody. We love you. Oh, just as you are. And, and then we, we start looking a little bit more worldly because we're compromising our own integrity to try to reach somebody. And we do it in the name of love. But we start loving people past the point that maybe Jesus would love them. So we get this weird dynamic of like, I, I, I want to be truthful to the word of God, but I also want to have a lot of grace and mercy. And a lot of times, Christians end up in one of those two camps. And it's a slippery slope. Daniel had this unbelievable ability to stay firm in his faith. He stayed firm in his faith. He didn't waver from the word. And an influence, a generation at the same time. He pulled it both off. These people liked him. Hey, let's try this. This doesn't work then. You test us after 10 days to see. And Jesus had the same ability. That's why he was total perfection and total righteousness 
with skin. All right, I want to show you. Um, he was perfectly holy with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with sinners at his feet. He never compromised who he was. Jesus never compromised who he was and who he believed he should be. Yeah, they, they all felt loved at the same time. I love that scripture says that sinners were drawn to him. That's crazy to me. And they didn't come saying, we're proud of our sin, but they came saying, yeah, we know we're sinful, but man, there's something about this guy. How do you do that? How, how, do, you, how do you hold firm to the truth? Jesus never compromised. He never sinned. Okay? He was never worldly. But you also have this grace and this mercy and this love where you accept people as they are and you try to move them where God wants them to be. How, like, how do you do that? Look at John 1.14. This is so good. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace, full of grace and truth. Somehow he navigated those waters perfectly and the pendulum was right in the middle. I'm full of grace and I'm going to love people. I'm going to be slow to anger and abounding in love. My mercies are going to be new every morning. My grace is going to be sufficient for you. I'm full of grace, but I'm also full of truth. I'm not going to waver from the truth of God's word. I'm not going to waver from who he needs me to be in this culture. So I'm not going to allow the culture to influence me. I'm going to influence the culture. And he does that with grace and truth. What is truth? Truth is God's standard. Truth is God's word. What is grace? Grace is the free, unmerited love and forgiveness of God. And I think we have a hard time as Christians striking that balance without truth. Without truth, we're corrupt. If we just say we're over here, then sometimes we can become worldly and we become corrupt and we start compromising. We start changing things about us to reach people. We're carnal. And God's word allows us to be changed. I think, I think the Lord for God's word. But at the same time, we need grace because without grace then we're condemned. Like we have all this truth and we're condemned. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works. It's not by doing anything that we're saved. We need grace for salvation, not by works so no one can boast. Like it is the grace that saves us. Without truth, we become worldly. Without grace, we become judgmental. So we got to navigate both those waters. Listen to this. This is, this is uh, this thought on the screen. It says, truth without grace is mean. <laughs> if I'm over here and I'm just truthful and I don't have any grace, I'm just mean. If I've got grace without truth, it's meaningless. If I can do tra- truth and grace, it's medicine. If I can find a way to meet in the middle, I've got to give you some truth and I've got to give you some grace. That's medicine. good for the soul, man. It's what heals us. And I want to ask you to live like that. For Daniel to be the roadmap of how to navigate those waters. Grace invites us to be free. I know what you did. I know what you did last night, but you're still welcome here. Come on in. But truth sets us free. It's, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That, that's the freedom I find if I just stay here, too. We don't change God's word. We allow God's word to change us and the people that are around us. So I want to close with a beautiful story it's one of the best stories in the Bible to illustrate this. It's found in John chapter 8. It's a very familiar story. If you've been in church for 10 minutes, you've probably heard this a dozen times. It's just a good one. Um, but it's John 8, beginning in verse 1. Listen along. It says, Jesus 
went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now, I don't know how that all panned out. Let's go back. Uh, how, how, how do you catch her in adultery? Like, what were they doing in that room? <laughs> it's really easy for us to point out other people's sins and not acknowledge our own. I just want to notice that, that, that that's, they're good at seeing their sins. So verse 3, the end of verse 3. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? What are you going to say about the world? What are you going to say when the Supreme Court makes a ruling that you're not in agreement with, necessarily? What are you going to say when somebody posts something online, fill in the blank, right? What are you going to say? He says, what do you say? They're trying to trap him. In fact, the very next verse says that. Look at verse 6. They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So they're trying to give him an either or, right? They're trying to say, okay, should we kill her? Truth. Should we kill her? That's what the law says. It's all about the truth. Or do we let her go? Grace. What do we do? Because if you do grace, then you're breaking the law. Pick it, Jesus. So they're trying to trap him. They're making him choose either or, truth or grace. What do you want, Lord? Truth or grace? Grace or truth? Which one do you want? And so he starts riding in the dirt. And I, I, don't, I don't know what he was writing. The Bible doesn't say. Uh, I'd love to think about it, right? He just, he just starts kneeling down. He's just riding, you know. <laughs> I've thought about like him riding like what the Pharisee did last night. You know, like, hey, I know what you're thinking right now. You're going to hell, right? There's whatever, like... <laughs> I don't know what he's writing in the sand. He didn't do that. So look at the next verse, verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So in this text... He starts writing in the sand, and they start going away. And a lot of biblical scholars believe the older ones went first because they had the most sin because they lived the most life. And they just felt the pressure of that and going, Whew. yep. And I don't know, I've heard people, I've heard preachers talk about maybe he was the one writing, he was writing names of women. You had an affair with her, and you had an affair with her, and they just start looking and go, I'm going to leave. Okay? <laughs> we don't really know, but it's fun to think about. And look at this. Jesus straightened up again and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And let me just stop right there and say, when he confronts our sin and our past, he does it in the most respectful, not humiliating, personal kind of way. We got to find a way to do that where you just do it. Hey, listen, I love you. This is not me being judgmental. It's just like, where are your accusers? It's respectful. It's not humiliating. And look at the last verse. This is so good. Verse 11. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you. Grace. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin or go and sin no more. Truth. I figured out a way to have grace and truth. It's not an either or. 
It's a both and. I'm going to love you. I'm not going to condemn you. But you got to go now and leave your life of sin. we got to have grace and truth. And he says that to you, and he says that to me today. I know what you did last night, and you're still welcome here. Let me work in your life to help you leave your life of sin. That's what he's saying. I'm calling us to a higher level of God's truth. We're not, we're not going to change from God's word for our culture. We're not going to... We're not going to defer from, we're not going to push away from God's word for our culture. But we're at the same time going to freely give God's grace to a world that desperately needs it. I'm going to ask the band to come and uh, we're going to close out tonight. We're, we're actually, uh, I know in the past couple of weeks we've done groups we've, and that's been fun and you guys have, have killed that. Uh, but last week, if you were here, I promised that we're going to have some extended worship tonight. So we're just going to worship here at the end, at the back end, and we're not going to do groups tonight. But um, I just want to say that, that this, this book of Daniel is so good because it, when you look at the parallelism between their culture and our culture, it's pretty, pretty ominous, and it's, just, it's heavy. And that's the playbook. Again, the history is the prophecy. Like This is stuff that we're dealing with right now. How do you influence the culture? without being influenced by the culture. And I think the way you do it is what Jesus did and what Daniel did. He said, I'm going to stand firm in the truth of God's word, but I'm also going to extend the grace to a world that desperately needs it. So you've got to find a way to navigate that in your circles of influence, where you do life, with the people you live beside and hang out with and work with. And I want to extend that to you tonight. Maybe you're here and you say, read it like I've never heard it put like that before. And I need that. I need, I need grace. I don't know that I am saved, Reed. And, and, and it is by grace that I've been saved. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever fully received Jesus as my Lord, as my Savior, and put my heart in his. I've never done that. And I want to do that tonight. Listen, it is by grace you've been saved. Through faith. It's a faith action. It's you placing your faith in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe that in your heart, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can find salvation tonight, right here before you leave here tonight. Grace is available. But I also want you to know that, that this, this, this road is full of truth, too. And it's not truth. I don't want you to think that a life with Jesus is full of rules and regulations because that's not how I see it at all. And I've been following him for nearly 20, 30 years, nearly 30 years, 28 years. That this, this truth gives you freedom. In fact, Galatians 5 says that it's freedom that Christ has set you free. Like that's why I went to the cross in the first place is to give you freedom through this holy word. So I want to give you an opportunity to receive that tonight. You say, Reed, I need Jesus. I need the truth. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. That's Jesus' words. So maybe you need the truth tonight to come into your life to give you the grace that you need to cover your sins, past, present, and future. And I'd love to offer that to you tonight, not because it's something that I have. It's just something I've, been, I've received. And it doesn't make me better than anybody in the room. It just makes me better than I used to be. And I just want to give you that opportunity to receive that for yourself tonight. So let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, for everybody in the room, I don't know where everybody's at spiritually. And for many in the room, their next step on their continuum of faith is is to place their faith in you. 
And I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would accomplish that miracle tonight in their lives. That they would confess with their mouths that you are Lord. They would believe in their hearts that you are raised from the dead and that tonight they would find salvation. They would believe in the name of the Lord our God and find salvation. And right now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would just love you, uh, if, if that's you, again, nobody's looking around. I'd just love for you to slip your hand up in the air. If that's you, we, we can pray for you. Awesome, awesome. I see hands in the room. Anybody else? Awesome, 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 awesome. Awesome, you can put your hands down. If you put your hands up, there are about six of you. Let me just pray for you. And why don't, let's all pray this out loud together just to give them confidence in the room as we're praying this out loud. Again, if you confess with your mouth, it's a, it's a confession that happens. There's no magic words that you say. It's just being honest and, and vulnerable in your heart, saying, Jesus, I need you. So let's pray this together. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus to earth to die for me, for my sins, for my mistakes. I give my life to you. I want you to save me. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to start me over. Make me a new creation in Christ. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for the grace that sets me free tonight. And now I resolve. Now I resolve to live in the truth of God's word knowing that every day I'm going to blow it once or twice or a hundred (laughs) times and I'm going to get the grace because it's grace and it's truth and I thank you Lord for both thank you for the cross thank you for the cross thank you for the cross in Jesus name amen For the six of you that said that, if you prayed that and you meant that, you're now saved and forgiven by God. Come on, I think we should do a little better than that. We're saved and forgiven by God. That's so good. Woo! That's a pretty cool moment. Mark this down, March 4, 2018. I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And I got grace and I got truth. And he's with me. And I'm going forward. I'm, I'm a different person. And listen, here's the thing. And then we talked about this in the last series. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have lived and operated in sin and just in the flesh. We all did for a certain amount of time. And then tonight things change. You're a new creation in Christ. But here's the problem is that you have conformed to the pattern of this world. And so tomorrow it's going to be really tempting to just go back to the old you. To just go, well, this is, this is what I've done. But there's a renewing of your mind. You have to renew your mind to say, okay, now I'm a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new is come. And I'm living in the truth. I'm going to resolve, as Daniel did, to draw the line of the sand and say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm a different person. I've got the grace of God. And the grace covers you. If you mess it tomorrow, you blow it tomorrow, it's okay. Grace covers you. But you just draw the line in the sand and say, I'm resolving. I'm not going to compromise anymore. Because when I compromise, it only weakens my resolve for the next time, and the next time, and the next time. And we want to be here along the way to help you in that journey with Jesus.
Okay, I'm sorry. That was really loud on the microphone, and I apologize. I just get really excited about it. All right, so we're going to celebrate. We're going to worship tonight. We're going to close out with a few songs. Let's stand together and praise God.